0: supposed to earn it, or what to do with it, or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret, but you're not the only one. Keep your hidden financial fears with like a of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, Deadbeats. It's me, Gabby Dunn. And this is Bad With Money with me, Gabby Dunn. You get it. This week is a fangirl week. This is a week where we have someone on the show that I personally have been dying to speak to. They're not a pop star, or an actor, or a former president, or the typical people a typical person would fangirl over. This week, I'm fangirling over a sociology professor. That's right, I am obsessed with my guest this week, particularly with her writings on the wealthy and their hidden habits. Her name is Rachel Sherman, and she's a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. This is who I've become, you guys. I'm a complete fangirl of a sociology professor. This is me now. I found out about her in 2017 when Rachel wrote a New York Times op-ed article that I still think about at least once a day. Sincerely, it is haunting me. It was called What the Rich Won't Tell You, and if you've read my book, Bad with Money then you know just how incredible I found it. That piece was adapted from her book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, which was based on 50 in-depth interviews Rachel conducted with super wealthy New Yorkers. Those in the 1%. Those with six-figure salaries, family wealth in the millions, and problems like which private school to send their child to, and whether or not to buy a vacation home in the Hamptons. So many tidbits stick out in Sherman's research. The woman who almost cancels the interview because of her discomfort with being called affluent. The woman who removes the labels from her $6 bread before her nanny can see it. The many people who argue that because they don't have a private plane, they couldn't possibly be rich. We talk a lot on this show about the lives of low-income or middle-class people, rightfully so, since there are plenty of other financial podcasts and websites and shows that focus on the super-rich. And there's definitely a consensus on social media that anytime a wealthier person shares any truths about their lives, it's an invitation to collectively shit on them. But if we're encouraging transparency about money, then we have to be open to transparency from the wealthy too. We can, of course, criticize, but to understand money, we have to look into the realities of those who describe themselves as comfortable. What struck me was that throughout this show, we've explored the taboo nature of talking specifics about money, and the shame attached to doing so as a trickle-down effect. It often manifests in the stereotype that poor people don't want to talk about money because they're anxious about it or they feel embarrassed, when actually it's the people at the top that don't want to talk about money, and that trickles down to the people at the bottom. The people with money are the ones actually encouraging the silence or hiding the financial truths, which has the effect of normalizing keeping anything to do with money to your goddamn self. That's why Rachel Sherman's deep dives into uncomfortable truths about money from the side of the super rich is so refreshing. It's not pretty, and it's not PC, but it's necessary if we're going to get to the bottom of class disparity. Rachel talks about how deflecting from their own privilege allows those in the 1% to ignore the bigger reasons behind class immobility and how what the rich won't tell you becomes what the rest of us don't know.
1: I think in general, they have a particular kind of fear of talking about it. I mean, both because of the general thing of like, you're not supposed to talk about money, but also because not talking about money kind of allows them to keep invisible how much privilege they have. And so, yeah, many of the people who I talk to Very few of them really refused to tell me specific numbers, although a couple of them did. But most of them were uncomfortable talking about it, were very concerned about confidentiality. The woman you're referring to that I talk about in the piece said, you know, nobody's ever asked me my family's assets before. That's like asking, do you masturbate? Yes. That was the level that she – and and I I mean, people say that all the time, right? It's, you know, the two things that that we don't like to talk about are sex and money.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did the first episode of this podcast. I went to a coffee shop and asked people, what's your favorite sex position? And everyone told me. And then I said, how much money is in your bank account? And everyone was like, get away from me. Yeah, (laughs) that was episode one of this show. But also I found it interesting. Yeah, what you're saying about wealthy people not budgeting, uh, the family that mentions that they don't feel like they live a $600,000 a year lifestyle. They joke about like, oh, is this what is this what that's like? Because we don't know where the money's going. And we don't feel like we know like how how we're spending that much. Is that something else that you encountered? Because I feel like the lower income people that I've spoken to and in my own experience, I like count every dollar.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, those people are probably the wealthiest people that I talked to. They had access to probably over one hundred million dollars. And there may be one or two other people in the sample who had that much money. So, you know, most people I'm talking to are not spending six hundred thousand dollars a year. But they are spending a lot, and yeah, they are – I mean, I think there's two things going on there. One of them is it's not – just like we can't control our money, that may have been part of it. But it's like, well, we have a normal life, right? We don't have the life that you imagine that you would have if you were spending $600,000 or actually $800,000 was what his wife later told me that they spent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, he's really working to kind of think of himself and represent himself as having this kind of normal life, right? Where he's just taking care of his kids and going about his business and being sort of harried. Mm-hmm. That's definitely one thing that's going on. And then I also think that people who... You know, have a lot of money, don't have to think very much about how they're spending it. That's not to say they never think about it. I mean, I don't mean to be portraying these people as super spendy or never thinking about money or whatever. They do think about it, but any, you know, some of them could say to me, well, I know that our Amex bill or our credit card bills every month are about, you know, $25,000 or something like that. So they have a general sense, but they're not budgeting typically in the way that not even just poor people, but, you know, middle-class people, people who have sort of recognizable limits on, on their money are doing.
0: Sure. I mean, I also was fascinated by the the obsession with seeming normal, which we touched on a little bit. This almost sort of like pride in being humble. I just read an article about um, Abigail Disney, and she was talking about the pride of, of being humble, like this thing of where there's like almost a bragging about how, little they spend of their money or how how much they do, like a congratulatory sort of like, I make my kids lunch.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it depends on, you know, whether or not we see that as congratulatory is actually a little bit dependent on our own interpretation of that. For right? sure. So, yes. Yeah. You can be like, oh, my God, these rich people, they're just go around bragging about how they made their kids lunch or how they took the bus or, you know, whatever. Um, but I think I think it's maybe a little bit more productive to see it as actually a product of a conflict that many of them are grappling with, which is there is kind of a stigma of being wealthy. Yes. Right? So even though the American dream and you're supposed to want to make a bazillion dollars and, you know, that's all supposed to be so foundational to the U.S., once you have the money, I think that there's so many kind of negative ideas about wealthy people that we see represented all the time on, like, reality TV. Yeah. Um. That, you know, these people don't want to be that. And the only way to not be that, to not be materialistic and greedy and obnoxious and uh, rude and, you know, lazy, is to go the other way and be prudent and hardworking and, you know, nice and raise your kids to also be like that. And that kind of makes you normal in the sense of sort of like – middle class, right? You sort of seem middle class. You seem to be part of the great American middle mm-hmm. rather than seeming like a Kardashian or something like that.
0: We're going to pause here for a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Back to the interview. What, what is your economic background? Like? How did you get access to, to these people?
1: Well, I come from a kind of mixed class family. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom's family was kind of, I don't know, upper working class, or we can talk about what these definitions are, but Uh, she didn't have a lot of money growing up. And my dad's family is wealthy, and I grew up with a kind of upper middle class, you know, what's conventionally called upper middle class lifestyle. They're not Mm -hmm. super wealthy, but I went to private school, you know, almost my whole life. I went to an Ivy League college, you know, I... Um, I had this, these privileges that people who have economic resources have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what got me interested in, in these issues was sort of seeing these two different economic situations in my own life. That's a little bit of a different question from how I got access to the people in the book. Although it's not entirely different because it turns out that when you go to an Ivy League school – you know a lot of people who either already have or end up making a lot of money. Yeah. So some of the people that are in the book um I got to through people who I went to college with. Mm-hmm. And actually I think that that's something you know when you go to those colleges you you're not thinking like oh we're all so elite. You know there's a few elite super elite people and everyone's like oh they're so elite but mm-hmm. we're we're normal, right? And then later it's like oh no actually we are part of the you know hyper educated um American elite and as i get older um i see that you know many people who i knew in college have risen to relatively you know prominent positions in their various fields
0: yeah and they were already sort of primed to do that just by being able to attend that school
1: yeah absolutely
0: so um for my listeners like in your book how rich are the people that you interviewed
1: yeah i think that's a really important question because there is a range of people who i interviewed they are almost all in the top 1 or 2% so i interviewed some people who were married to each other so i have 42 households with 50 interviews about half of those households had at least a million dollars in income or assets over 8 million dollars so mm-hmm. they're solidly in the 1% i mean that's you know well into the 1% maybe another 10 or 12 had Incomes around five hundred thousand dollars or assets over three million, so also in the one percent. And then there's a few that are my my cutoff. Initially was two hundred fifty thousand dollar income. There's a couple of people in the sample who are closer to that, although I talk about them less in the book because I think the issues are different. But you know, people will point out that there's more variation within the top one percent than there is between the one percent and everybody else, and that's true. So you can be in the one percent with it depends on the year, but say. Four hundred thousand dollars income, or I think it's something like uh, ten million dollars in wealth, and you can be at the top of that is obviously you know Jeff Bezos or mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, right? So there is a huge range there. Um, I think that even though there was a, some differences within my sample about how much money people had, you know, between hundred million dollars and you know say five hundred thousand dollars a year, obviously that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. I think that the patterns that I'm identifying about what it means to be a morally worthy, wealthy person are pretty widespread, not just within this group, but kind of in American culture generally, right? These ideas that we have about what it means to be a good person when you have money. But I'll also say about the sample, I mean, most of the people are white, about 20% of them are not white, um, African American and South Asian. Mm -hmm. And about 20% of them are in same-sex relationships and they okay. were all mar- they were all married with the exception of one uh, gay couple and they all had kids so they're people at a particular life stage too right which is a stage where they're thinking about where they're going to send their kids you know they mostly have little kids where they're going to send them to school mm-hmm. where they're going to live so they're not the like older rich people who I think are more set in their ways and maybe have are thinking less about these kinds of lifestyle decisions which then can produce conflicts and they're also not the younger people who you know, might have inherited $10 million but are still, like, sleeping on a futon in an apartment with, you know, 10 other people Sure, in Brooklyn or whatever.
0: Just for, just
1: for the lifestyle. <laughs> well, well, or just, you know, that's kind of like what you do when you're, I mean, when that's you're not that what everybody age. does. But that's, a you know, a significant slice of people. And, and again, I don't think that that's necessarily kind of, like, slumming it or intentionally hiding your wealth. I think that's often just kind of what your peers are doing. Mm -hmm. So it just sort of seems more normal to you.
0: Mm -hmm. The people that you interviewed who were not straight white people, were they mostly people who had made their own wealth? And did they feel was there like a difference in their situations? Or did you notice any kind of difference there from the other people that you spoke to?
1: So the not straight people, not really. The the not straight. – I'm just trying to remember. The gay and lesbian people I interviewed were kind of a combination of, you know, making it themselves and inheriting, inheriting. it. And I don't think that they really feel that di- – I don't think that they feel differently from, you know, straight people about it. Like the there's one uh, gay dude who I interviewed who was – who gave a very sort of familiar – discourse about having earned it himself and Mm -hmm. you know that he was proud because when he went to his Ivy League school he felt you know like he had actually he was there because he was smart and not because he was rich right Mm -hmm. so that's like his being gay had nothing to do with that Um, I think people with people of color it's a little bit different because, you know, obviously wealth concentrations among people of color, you know, that that's really significant disparities, especially between uh, African-American and Latino people and white people. So there's, in my sample, a difference between South Asians and the South Asians I interviewed had all were in families that had accumulated wealth, although they didn't start from like super poverty. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't, I didn't see something that was particularly like race or ethnicity conscious there, but we haven't really talked about this. But one of the main things that they really are allergic to is this idea of entitlement, right, mm-hmm. especially their children being entitled. Entitled isn't, is a sort of a dirty word. It kind of encapsulates everything that's wrong with wealthy people morally. Mm-hmm. But the only person who said to me, like, you know, I hope my kids are entitled was an African-American woman who remembered going to her Ivy League college and, you know, the way that white students would talk to professors and, you know, feel comfortable approaching them. And she didn't feel like that. You know, that was a kind of healthy entitlement Um, That she didn't want her kids to be obnoxious assholes, of course, either. Confidence, but a kind of yeah, and I feel like I deserve this attention, and you know, I I have a right to be be here. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, yes, and also I think that they may have been more conflicted, or you know, in some ways, because you know, African Americans in general tend to have more diverse class networks, even within their own families. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were among the people who were sometimes like supporting other people in their families or, so, you know, they're, they're – I would say in general, regardless of race, the people I talked to who had more diverse social networks were more aware of these issues, more willing to talk about them and thought about them more. And certainly African-Americans kind of fit into that um, category.
0: So yeah, I want to get into the the crux of it which is like I definitely see this in, among my friends and peers like this sort of idea that if you are wealthy but you worked hard for it or you earned it, then everyone is on board. Like this thing where I think like so I, you know, I work on the internet and I've I've done stuff where like my fans have watched me over the last 5 years. And when they first encountered me, I w- had a certain amount of money and then Now it's a little bit different and I think there's like this thing where I don't think they're ever really angry at anything that that happens to me that's good because they know my history And, and I see that with other entertainer friends of mine. But like, if you are someone, you know, presumed to have come from wealth, like Lena Dunham, anytime she gets something, everyone is like, "Ah, go fuck yourself. So like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so talk a bit about that, about their sort of anxieties of trying to be like, well, no, but I earned this and how that sort of factors into an erasure of privilege?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really fascinating question, because in that you already see like Lena Dunham is facing the stigma of privilege to begin with, which is not to say that privilege isn't Uh, prominent in her work in many ways also Mm -hmm. Um, but that then if you come from privilege then it, it almost becomes impossible for you for people to perceive you as having earned anything right and then you're constantly having to be like no but I worked really hard so yeah the people that I was talking to I mean they all care about The notion of having worked hard, I'm being careful with this because inheritors obviously know that they did not earn the money with paid labor, right? Right. So they're not pretending that they did, but they're presenting themselves as still being hard workers. And the same is true for the women who I interviewed who were now stay-at-home moms, you know, married to men, mostly in finance, who were not earning any money at all, but still very careful to talk about how they had worked hard in the past or how they were working hard now, you know, raising their kids Mm -hmm. or... Um, whatever kind of family stuff they were engaged in doing. And yeah, I think that's sort of the number one thing that makes us see rich people as worthy as if they earned it. The question is, and and there's there's an interesting relationship between working hard and earning, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to earn something? The earning is not necessarily a reflection of the work, right? There are lots of people who work very hard and never – earn very much money just because they don't have the kinds of advantages that have led them to get, you know, educations that would allow them to have high-paying jobs or whatever. So the notion that any paid work is earning, like Mm -hmm. constitutes earning if you've done anything, um, I think that that's a kind of fragile notion, even though it's something that we, you know, people constantly say, like, well, he earned it. But did you earn it? Do you deserve to be, like, a billionaire because you— you know, started a technology company, for example, when somebody who's working as a janitor or working in Walmart or, Or a teacher or a teacher, yeah, certainly, or a teacher who may be working just as many hours as you, maybe just as smart as you. Like, is, does that make it okay that you have so much?
0: We'll be right back to this interview after a break. I mean I think a lot of times when people say well but I I earned it they're not taking into account that you were able to do that because of starting in a certain at a certain place um, and I always think about and I and I talk about this in my book Mitt Romney at this like town hall where he's talking about how someone was like, well, how do you start like a business or what do you do after college? And he was like, well, you should ask your parents for ten thousand dollars and then you can start uh, a business and then that'll like set you up or whatever. And people were railing on him because they were like, what in what world? But people who had that have that are like, well, yeah, but I then I took that and I worked really hard with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Trump is always saying that too, right? Like, yeah. I mean, when on the rare occasions when he will acknowledge having inherited anything from his father, this idea is like, well, I only inherited a little bit and then I like turned it into a lot. And i was been thinking about this in light of this whole, you know, college admissions scandal, right, which has really thrown into relief not just these, you know, insane illegal things that some parents have done, but also the legal advantages that their kids have, right, mm-hmm. which are, you know, now getting all of this kind of public play and thinking about whether that's exacerbating the discomfort of the people that I talk to or people like them because it's sort of like a spotlight is, you know, being shown on exactly all of the ways that their kids are have a, a leg up over other kids or, you know, born on third base or all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, the, the fact that you bring up Romney is interesting because in terms of parental transfers, right, that is you are essentially living on your parents, which you know, supposedly such a terrible thing to do. And many of the people that I interviewed, even well into their 40s and 50s, are still doing that because they're getting down payments for their houses from their parents. They're getting their parents are often paying for their children's private school education. So the grandparents pay for the private school because it's a tax. It's basically it's a gift that is not taxed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're constantly getting these kind of inflows of money. And yeah, that's not something that's ever really talked about.
0: Yeah, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not working hard. It's just a level of stress that is not added on. In my experience, being paycheck to paycheck or not having any sort of backup plan, and I've talked about this in the past, m- made me like physically ill. You know, I feel like I've experienced like a oh, now now uh, I have a nosebleed because my car broke down. Like physical symptoms of stress that I don't think occur when you do have some sort of backup plan.
1: Yeah, I don't think they occur because of that your car breaking down is going to bankrupt you. Right. Um, I do think that people are... Very stressed out. I mean, I remember this one woman, a stay at home mom who I interviewed, who was just like, I'm so anxious all the time. I I mean, this is going to sound it's also really interesting. And it's almost impossible to talk about these people without sounding like I'm being judgmental of them.
0: I know. And I don't want to be judgmental either. I don't I mean, I feel like if I had this, if I had come from this, I would be like, I always feel like, yeah, man, take the money and run. Like, you know, like. If I had if I had had these advantages like I would have I would be like hell yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, would you? I don't know.
0: I I don't know because part of me also feels this this sort of like poverty, martyrdom or like this thing where I tell fucked up stories from my life and I sort of laugh at them or like use them in comedy or make light of them because it's like, oh, I came out the other side of like the weird fucked up stuff that I used to do. To try to make money or whatever. Whereas like I think my best friend, she comes from a wealthy family and she kind of is always very, she's like, what, like what? <laughs> like about my past life. But then part of me is like, well, but I got all of these stories and I got all of these like, you know, life experiences that maybe like made me who I am and made me a better person. I don't know. Because then it's a the martyrdom of like, I'm a better person because I worked all these weird jobs and I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's the thing.
1: It's like everything you're talking about is like the moral worth that attaches to to mobility. It's really mobility because if you were still working those shitty jobs or, you know, being in these stress, you know, situations where you're getting nosebleed every time something bad happens, you can't pay your rent like that. Those are not stories to be proud of. Right. I mean, poor people are often ashamed of being poor because they're given all these messages that it's possible not to be poor. Right. So yeah. I think that those kinds of stories where it's like, I mean, and again, I'm not speaking to your experience, but. the the stories that you can tell, as long as they're in the past, right, then they become kind of indicators of—sometimes they're just funny stories, but they become, like, indicators of your tenacity or your moral worth or whatever, right? So it's like, yes, I made it, and, like, here's how poor I was. And I also think—and again, this is not you, but there are lots of people that are more affluent I'm not necessarily super rich people, but people who are comfortable, who are always complaining about that they don't have enough money for stuff. And— I think that they do that often to avoid feeling like they have more than other people because it feels crappy to feel like you have more than other people, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what what I was going to say in response to the question about anxiety. And this woman was like, you know, I I have to hire a new nanny and, you know, my nanny's leaving and so I need a new nanny. And I'm also chairing the benefit for my kid's school, you know, Mm -hmm. she had small kids but she was genuinely stressed out. I mean, I think she had genuine physical symptoms. Yes. So, and anxiety so,
0: and, knows no class.
1: Well, I would just say anxiety as a way of sort of making it okay that you have a lot, right? That mm-hmm. it's sort of as long as you're anxious, as long as, you know, you're not just sitting pretty and like psyched about life and, you know, floating down the river on an inner tube or whatever. You're like freaking out about something. Wanting and to relate
0: this, to people because you're like,
1: well, we're all freaking out. Yeah. And that's why everybody, I mean, this is a little bit aside even from the class thing, but I think, you know, this is why we have this this language, at least among the kind of professional managerial class or whatever class I'm in now, where everybody's constantly complaining about how busy they are and how stressed out they are, yes. right? It's a, kind of, it's a kind of currency of, like, if you're just like, yeah, I'm not that stressed out, you know, that makes it seem like there's something wrong with you. So I think there's something like that is also going on.
0: And also how easily your problems change and they're still problems. Like, me, five years ago, would be, like, so excited that I have a book out. But then, uh, like, me in January, when the book was coming out, was like, I'm, I'm so stressed. Like, I have a book coming out. And it's like, oh, boo-hoo. You're stressed because your book's coming out. You know what I mean? How yeah, easily well, you adjust to, like, well, your new circumstances.
1: I think that's related in in the sense that, to me, that sense of, like, something really great is happening to me. If I'm happy about that, I feel a little bit like I'm bragging. Yeah. Right? That I'm sort of like shaming other people because nothing. And and I think especially women may feel this way, right? I mean, it seems like men brag a little bit more easily. Yeah. And so you're kind of supposed to be just constantly downplaying when things are going well or, you know, this is why you have to be always talking about how stressed you are. And it doesn't mean you don't feel it. It just means that culturally you're encouraged to feel all these kind of negative feelings instead of being like, yeah, that's awesome. I have a book out and a bunch of people are going to read it and I worked really hard on it and I'm happy with it. Like, end of story. You know, there always has to be like, but I'm really worried about this or that aspect of it, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, you know, again, I think that's a broader cultural phenomenon that's certainly related to gender. and But it, it is kind of overlaps with this class thing because I think a lot of, you know, people who have economic advantages don't want to be talking about those advantages because they feel bad about them relative to other people and especially in moments like the one we're going through now, you know, starting with the recession but then with Occupy and now with, the, you know, kind of Bernie Sanders and mm-hmm. AOC, like bringing these discourses, you know, really critical discourses of inequality um, onto the public stage that I think it's easier to feel like, oh, yeah, there is a lot of inequality and I've benefited from the, the same processes that have created this inequality and I feel kind of bad about it.
0: Can you talk a bit about the woman who was removing labels from stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, she said she said something like, "I take the label off my six dollar bread because I don't want the nanny to see it." She took, said, "I took the take the labels off my jeans, you know, my new clothes that are hanging around. I take the labels off of those." And you know, what's interesting about that was she she was like, "Well, it's not like a mink coat, you know. I'm I'm they're my Levi's jeans." So she's already saying like, "No, I'm a normal person." I'm buying regular clothes, but they're still more expensive than the clothes that the nanny can afford. And she was very, very conscious of having these kinds of choices, which she referred to as obscene, right? She was, you know, this is a politically progressive person mm-hmm. um, who sees this inequality as a problem, mm-hmm. but then is kind of just hiding it. And, of course, she's not hiding it from the nanny. And other people, actually, since that article came out, other people have told me that they do that, too, or mm-hmm. that they know what people who do it. Um, so I think it may be fairly widespread. And it's – you're not hiding it from the nanny. Like, the nanny knows that you have money, right? Right. The nanny's not an idiot. So you're actually – I mean, my sort of hypothesis about it is that it functions more to hide the inequality from you. You know, that you feel guilty, like, oh, I have this, you know, in New York, usually immigrant woman cleaning my house Mm -hmm. and and taking care of my kids. Mm -hmm. and. It makes me feel bad that I have so much more than she does. So I'm going to just remove this, like, literal piece of paper that has this number on it so that she doesn't see it and so that I don't have to look at it and think about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, like, the, if you're saying the woman is politically progressive, it's sort of this thing where I think that they feel like, oh, man—and you talked about Occupy. Like, the the— quote unquote like commoners are going to find out how much money we have and then they're going to come after us with torches and pitchforks like I had someone you know because this show is very progressive I have I had someone comment yesterday being like okay Gabby when do we eat the rich and I was like okay well I don't know that that's necessarily where I'm at but (laughs) do you know what I mean like they think even though they're like I believe in Raising the minimum wage, and I believe in um, you know trans healthcare and gay rights, and I believe in this, this, and this. They're like, ah, but there's I still have this systemic inequality that I'm benefiting from, and I, I don't know how to marry those two.
1: Yeah, well, definitely that. I mean, I think that's exactly the issue. I'm not sure about the pitchforks piece of it. You know, that's something people ask me about a lot. I, I didn't get that sense. You know, a couple of the very richest people have some concerns about like security, right? That their kids are going to get kidnapped or something. Yeah, but I don't. My sense is not like I literally am going to be attacked by, a you know, a mob with a flaming torch or something. It's mm-hmm. like it's more what you just said. It's hard to live as a person that has all this privilege in a system with which I disagree. Right. Yeah, and it's hard exactly. to know what to do about that. So I think that, the you know, this, the, a lot of people that in that Times article got a ton of comments and a lot of them were like, why doesn't that woman just pay her nanny more? Yeah. And, That's not going to solve the problem, right? It's not—we could all—everybody could pay their nanny or their housekeeper, you know, twice as much as they currently do.
0: You're not going to get—with individuals doing things isn't going to fix systemic inequality. That's what I've learned.
1: Yeah, right. That's exactly right. But it it was really interesting to me how many people just thought that that was the answer. This is kind of like individual Band-Aid. And I'll just say I am now doing research among younger people who are— wealthy or will be wealthy, um, mostly people from families that have wealth, who are really politically progressive and really trying to figure out what it is that they can do yeah. to change the system, who recognize the system and are you know trying to change the system that they're part of. Mm-hmm. And that's not an easy, you know, there's no obvious answer to that.
0: Right. Because then it's like, well, let's redistribute the wealth. And then they're like, but it's my wealth.
1: <laughs> well, or like, how do you redistribute the wealth? Yeah right i mean what's the what's the best mechanism for that and i think that there's some you know some people i think middle-aged people like me um, <laughs> are like, you know, we should devote this to taxing the rich more and strengthening labor law. And so stop these forces that produce inequality. You know, And I agree with that. But I think that there are some people that think like my job as a wealthy person is to just give my money to the people who are most oppressed by this system and let them decide what to do with it. And they may or may not decide to, that it goes to tax policy, right? It might go to – you know, stopping uh, police brutality mm-hmm, or it mm-hmm. might go toward, you know, other kinds of community things. So I don't think it's obvious exactly what you should do. And I am I also don't think it's obvious exactly how you should live. Like, does it make a difference if you, you know, have access to one million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever? And, you know, should you live like like you don't have that access? Should does it better to live in a you know, collective house and sleep on a futon in a room that you share with someone else and for your entire life. Like, there's a way in which I think that's sometimes seen as morally better, but I'm not sure that it is.
0: It is this mix of like, well, even with younger people, I see friends, I'm in the YouTube world, so I see friends of mine, you know, posting their opulence on on social media and like, you know, posting in front of Ferraris, posting at from the Versace mansion, posting their I've mentioned this so many times, the their Balenciaga shoes, which I guess I clearly want because I've talked about them so much. But um, <laughs> either it's loved on because they're they've earned it or people like it because it's aspirational or something. Like, there seems to be less of a a fear from, I don't know, twenty one to twenty five year olds with regards to, like, showing off their wealth,
1: yeah. I think it really depends on, you know, individually what the story of those people is. I think a lot of this aspirational stuff is often – it's actually not rich people who think that that's awesome, right? It's poor people or middle class people who – for whom it represents something to aspire yes. to. So, and yeah, one of the things that's being celebrated, I assume, is the mobility, right? Nobody's, like, posing in front of the Lamborghini that their dad bought them. No, the glow up. So,
0: the glow yeah. up. <laughs> and, and then – but then I feel very uncomfortable – with, like, any sort of show of, of wealth on any on any platform, and I clock it with other people. Like, if a friend of mine is wearing something and I know it's from, like, a Gucci collection, I'll be like, oh, well, well, well. But
1: I, isn't that the, kind of the opposite of what you were saying before about, like, you've had some success and so you feel okay about it?
0: I know. I, I feel okay. I fe- No, it's not even me. I feel like, you know, someone one time said to me, like, if a friend of mine who's wealthy was like, if I succeed in entertainment, everyone will just go, "Well, of course she did. She's wealthy." But if you, Gabby, succeed in entertainment, everyone will be like, "Wow, she did it." You know?
1: Right. She right. had
0: to work as a postmate and a babysitter and a waitress and like she did it, you know?
1: But I mean, I'm still I'm still wondering like would you wear those Balenciaga? Sh- like would you ever buy those Balenciaga shoes if you felt even if you felt like you could afford them and like wear them around?
0: No, I would I would feel really awkward about it. Mhm. But I guess it's right. because I didn't grow. I didn't grow up with. I think. Well, they're white, so I mean, I would just every day be like, "Are, are they dirty? What's going on?" <laughs> like I would be like, <laughs> "I have to put them in a like I have to put them in a box and never look at them," um, which is like such a, a scarcity mindset. <laughs> um, so I also want to talk about um, the private plane standard. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I think that many of the people that I talked to, m- many of them resisted. Thinking of themselves as affluent or wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I actually avoided using that word when I was kind of recruiting them to be in this study. So I didn't have a super explicit conversation about this, you know, necessarily with every single person. But people would when asked if they felt like they were affluent or, you know, well like asked to describe themselves, any time that they had to place themselves class-wise, they would almost always refer to themselves as middle or upper middle class. This is even people who, you know, are have household incomes of several million dollars. Right. Um, and then they would be like, well, the real affluent people are our friends who have the private plane.
0: Yes. The, and, the mm- e- ecologically... Irresponsible private plane.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, that's, again, they want to distance themselves from that, right? Mm -hmm. They're not saying, like, I wish I had a private plane. They're glad that somebody has more than they do because it makes it easier for them to define themselves as not affluent.
0: Yeah. Is there a lack of acknowledgement? They don't, like, because a lot of people think that privilege is a dirty word. Is there just a thing where they, like, don't want that on them?
1: Yeah, I think they don't want to say their privilege. They don't want to say. I mean, think about all the words that we use for rich people. They all sort of have this negative connotation, right? Privilege, advantage, wealthy, but privilege.
0: Rich. I don't. Under, I hate when people are upset about the word privilege because it's like, it doesn't. It's just a descriptor. Like it doesn't mean anything bad about you in a way. Like obviously, like I'm, I'm queer, but I have white privilege. I have able bodied privilege. Like it's just sort of like a, a, a truth.
1: Yes, I totally agree with that myself. I mean, I think that that's objectively true. But if you think about it as analogous to white privilege, I think it's a a similar thing where people with class privilege, you know, people with white privilege, white people sometimes can't be like – they can't say, yes, I have white privilege, but it's not my fault, right? It doesn't make me a bad person. It's just I live in a system that gives me privilege because of the color of my skin. Right. And so, therefore, I've had these advantages. But it doesn't mean anything about me individually, right. morally, right? That's what you just said. Yes. But that is hard for people to recognize. I mean, lots of people are like, I'm not a racist. R- who are you calling racist, right? So, <laughs> And and that's the – it's like if you say you have white privilege, people hear you're a racist. You are a morally bad person. Right and i think the same thing with class privilege it's like if you recognize that you have class privilege it's not just like yeah i was born into a system you know that produced me as a class privileged person and i've had these you know resulting advantages from that it's like no but you're calling me a bad person if you're you're saying that i don't deserve this because of something about you know some something about my moral character right and you and- can
0: deserve it you just un- have to understand that you you're working hard under a thing that is already helping you a cushion
1: Right. I mean, I think that there's a very complicated conversation to be had about what does it mean to deserve it? I'm not sure Mm -hmm. you do deserve it just because you worked hard for it or didn't work hard for it. Lots of people work hard and they don't have any money, as we discussed. And lots of people aren't paid for work that they do, like lots of reproductive labor and domestic labor that typically women are doing. Right. Right. But yeah. And the other thing, I mean, this is sort of the central point of my book and of my work in this area is like we attach the moral worth of an individual to their position in the social structure, right, in the income or wealth distribution. So if you're in the middle, then it seems like you're good, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're fine. We're kind of going to assume you're hardworking yes. and whatever. If you're at the bottom, we assume that you're lazy and, you know, you probably spend money unwisely and you are, a, you know, the whole kind of welfare queen trope. And yes, all of you're, that a is person, very- you're a bad person.
0: You're a bad person.
1: Right. And it's very racialized also. And then at the top, you have this complicated thing, which is like, yeah, it's great to be, you know, Bill Gates and earn all this money and, you know, whatever. But at the same time, all of these tropes of like, well, no, you don't deserve it because you didn't work hard enough and you're overconsuming. It's actually the, you know, this kind of standard of hard work and reasonable consumption are applied at the top and the bottom in different ways to kind of morally condemn these people. So, of course, we know, you know, that poor people are not morally unworthy. The reasons that they're poor are Systemic. mostly out of their own control. Right. And the reasons that people are rich are also out of their control for the most part. Sure, they, you know, marginally, you have to do some work to get rich. And, you know, if you're not, if you don't start rich, but that's not the only thing that's going on. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it is, like, I think people love judgment. They love to judge poor people. They love to judge wealthy people. And I don't love... I hate, like, online even... Because, you know, I'm sure people took your article and they were like, oh, my God, this is, like, fucked up. Look at these people. But, like, I I am also uncomfortable with this thing on Twitter that happens a lot where it's, like, dragging of rich people. Because I, I, on this show, we're, we're very much about transparency. And I always say, like transparency doesn't necessarily mean that somebody says that they're struggling and we go, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for your honesty. And somebody says that they make $500,000 a year and we go, fuck you. That's not transparency. That's not what we're about here. Like It has right. to go both ways where you go, you're okay with the rich people saying that they're rich because otherwise, how are we going to know anything?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that what we need to be thinking about is less judging individuals, like they spend too much money or, you know, did you see that like Gucci thing that that person had Mm -hmm. and more about like what are the conditions that have that allow certain people to be wealthy and other people not to be right. Mm -hmm. And that partly that you already see with, you know, Bernie Sanders and um, AOC and more people talking about like, well, maybe we just shouldn't have so many billionaires, Mm -hmm. right? Like that seems like kind of a good place to start. That, that, is, that is a cultural conversation that is, I think, is moving forward pretty quickly. So I'm kind of just interested in supporting that by talking about the cultural ways in which we are being judgmental of rich individuals without being judgmental of the structures that produce them. Like, to me, it does not matter if you are hardworking and, like, nice to the waiter and you care about your kids – if you have a hundred billion dollars, I just don't think that people should have that much money when there are other people who are like literally starving. And and actually, I think that the one of the things that is a little bit hopeful about my research is that I think wealthy people will also benefit from more equality in the sense that they won't have to have so much of this inner conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, not to overstate like that. You know, every single wealthy person has this inner conflict, but I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with their position in the, at the top of such unequal distributions. And if they were more equal, then they wouldn't have to be so uncomfortable. And so I think that's a kind of like hidden bonus of w- what might happen if we could move a more egalitarian agenda forward.
0: And that was Rachel Sherman, the sociology professor that I'm obsessed with. Her book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, is out now. You can get it in paperback on May 14th. So please do that. Uh, I love her so much. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I, as always, am Gabby Dunn. And I will see you next time. Stitcher.